You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. What a night it was in the Premier League. Lots to get into, uh, including um, a bit of a recovery from Manchester United from 2-0 down, but obviously the most important result from Liverpool fans' perspective was the 2-1 win for Newcastle at home against Manchester City. That is the end of Pep Guardiola. His team have choked. League race done, title won. It's a procession from this point forward, right? Of course it is. You know, there's no way in hell that Liverpool are going to let it slip from here. A seven-point gap will open up after they win tonight, and I'm confident they will do, because there's no way they would take the opportunity and let it up from here. And the more you kind of talk yourself into that, the more you actually start to believe that it probably will happen. That there is far less of a possibility for this Liverpool team to choke than any other team in this year's Premier League because Manchester City we'd been uh, led to believe were dependent on numerous players to give them flair in attacking positions but that flair was pointless unless they had Fernandinho at the centre of their midfield and who gave away the penalty that essentially lost them the three points last night or lost them one point last night well it was uh, good old Fernandinho wasn't it not the greatest performance from him and when you are pointing to uh, a 33 year old midfielder as the foundation of your team and he had been spoken about in a way that if you, if you take the argument to its final conclusion should have been footballer of the year if yeah, I mean, he had won the league then he's not Roy Keane let's not get carried away here well exactly exactly he's an outstanding footballer and probably one of the most important cogs in, in the wheel that is Manchester City but the the reliance on him that, or, or the connection that he was the single reason between, the, between Manchester City and their Christmas hiccup I don't think that was necessarily true, and that's not. I'm not saying that people were, that everybody was saying that. Like there was plenty of journalists who were pointing out that there were a number of other reasons here why Manchester City faltered around uh, Christmas, uh, and their, their strike force was one of those reasons that uh, that was written about. And uh, you know, I think that's kind of been shown in great detail last night. But it's just Newcastle, isn't it? It's the least likely situation you would have expected in the build-up to, especially on one 0 down. You think like they might if they're going to win a game. And you're told they're going to win the game. It's like, well, it's a scratchy on goal or penalty very late on. That is a complete fluke against the run of play. But it wasn't. The commentator, when they were calling out the teams last night, said that uh, Salomon Rondon would be the most isolated man in the Northeast. These are the sort of lines that you hear about uh, Newcastle United. And it's, it's not really revisionism to say now that he was wrong about that because usually you're bang on when you say that sort of thing about Newcastle and especially when they go 1-0 down early on I, like did that lead to a mentality shift in Newcastle United you know, they had a couple of half chances in the first half Eose Perez had a couple of efforts that would that have happened if it was nil all and you'd gone to half time and then maybe if Manchester City had broken the deadlock around the hour mark would that have become then a floodgate moment? It's it's hard to tell. There's just they are one of the big enigmas of the Premier League, Newcastle. I think um, uh, you've got to say Man City are right there at the moment. Like so, Man City had their full team last night. Aguero started, Sterling started, Sané started, David Silva started, Fernandinho started, Kevin De Bruyne started. It wasn't like oh so so and so was injured or somebody suspended or such and such is out. It's like no complaints. Basically, full first choice team. This is the Pep Guardiola team. This is them, what they're supposed to be doing midweek, away against inferior opposition who are, you know, uh, a bank of five and four to try and um, prevent them from doing anything, and uh, they couldn't do it. No, and it is the, the one thing that you have said about this team is that when they come up against those big banks, they tend to find a way. It's almost archaic the way some of these teams have been spoken about, that Rafa Benitez is a man who's been living in a different time. And let's not forget that... 
the discourse around Rafa had gone from the point where it was genius manager with terrible players, genius manager will survive and go on to bigger and better things regardless of what happens, to the situation where it would have been the genius manager is actually being pulled down by these players and his reputation is going to be in tatters after this Newcastle United uh, project inevitably falls to tatters. Whereas now he's kind of got himself back into a situation and I know it's only one result where he can say to himself and Newcastle United fans would say his reputation is going to be uh, in a similar place when he actually eventually leaves this thing. There is going to be further trouble for Newcastle. This isn't the start of them turning things around. But from a Manchester City perspective, like it's, it's, it's just kind of hard to comprehend what actually happened to them last night because, as you say, that early goal is usually the start of, uh, of a floodgate moment against pretty much every team. What do you do now if you are Pep and you've got all the money in the world? Do you try and buy somebody today to help this team who can come in and make a difference? Well, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't think... Is it a personnel issue? It, it does seem like they hadn't conceded a goal for like 10 hours until they conceded their first one last night and then they went and conceded two. Since their Christmas hiccup, they've been playing brilliant football. They've been playing some of the best football uh, in Europe. It's, uh, it's just such a bizarre result, really, and they just have the tendency to do that this season. That I, I do wonder if you know, you've come off the back of a, brilliant, a historically brilliant Premier League season how easy is it to just keep that run going all the way through to the end of the next season? Doing back-to-back Premier League titles nowadays is extremely tough. And the reason why that is is because if you leave, if you leave yourself open to any sort of complacency at any point in a season, you will lose games that you presumably shouldn't be losing because there are quality teams still near the bottom of the Premier League as well and quality players. So I think that's kind of part of it. Like if Liverpool win the Premier League this season, where would they be? Where, where, where will they be in 12 months' time? Well, we know where they are at the moment. They're going to open up a seven-point lead, and it's because of this frenzied approach they have to going after a Premier League title that Jurgen Klopp has created a cult almost in that mm. uh, Anfield dressing room. Like you can't replicate that after you've won, after you've scratched that itch. And that's what I feel Manchester City are in, that you know, personnel-wise, I don't think that's the issue. I think they probably still have the strongest squad in the Premier League. But So you need somebody who hasn't scratched that itch and is driving on those standards. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Well, that this this group of players then is screwed because they've already won stuff. A small bit, I think that's certainly been a weakness. So, who? But the thing is, bringing new players in in a January in a January well in in a January window to try and rectify that is that's not going to cure <coughs> what, what's going on here. I don't know. I mean, is there like a, do they need a, a big lad up front that they can just knock it up to from time to time? Well, I don't. I, I don't know. Like the, the, the Carol. Sign Andy Carroll. Go bring Peter Crouch back up from wherever he is right now and sort that out. Like the the thing is though, the the contradiction at this point is Manchester City in the Champions League <coughs> over the last couple of years. The lapses that they've shown. Like what is it? There there is just something not right about this Manchester City team under Pep Guardiola, where they've done strange things. Weird things have happened to this Manchester City team uh, over the past couple of years. And you know they they are one of the, the great teams we've seen in the Premier League, but. Is there a chance, and it seems strange to say this, that this Pep Guardiola era at Manchester City just becomes a one massive, un- not a failure, one massive underachievement? That'd be a failure. Like they, they two, two league titles, one league title, one league title. Um, That'd be a failure. Like there's no all the money in the world. Going, that's a failure. There's no suggestion he's going to step down after the season. He might actually come back with a vengeance next year, uh, but maybe he will. Maybe he will. And I would say that if it's if this is done and dusted, he doesn't win a trophy this year. You have to say that it has been an underachievement from Pep Guardiola's side. But while also admitting that what we saw last year was some of the best football we've seen in the Premier League era. Aidan Connolly says, nice stress-free 2-0 win tonight, lads. Here's hoping. Um, but even like so, even when you see Aguero scores in the first minute, like, oh, God, this is going to be over. It's like, mm. and then, Time for bed. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but it wasn't. 
Um, yeah, I don't think it will be a stress-free 2-0 win for Liverpool tonight. Uh, Leicester City tends not to allow uh, stress to be absent in these sort of situations. Of course, they, uh, they did Manchester City over Christmas. And uh, like they have a, they have enough nasty people in their squad. Hmm. To, like the, you, you can almost, it's like having PTSD before the fact. Liverpool fans this morning looking at the face of Jamie Vardy, James Madison, James Madison, look, looking at their smirking Goodbye, faces. James Madison, though, you know, takes defeat well. You could, you can almost hear the scream. You know, when sometimes they celebrate so close to a camera, you can hear the scream from the player. Uh, you, can, you can almost hear that already and to be honest with you I don't want to see Jamie Vardy kind of postpone the Liverpool title parade we haven't even talked about Man United and the Solskjaer magic all a time yeah I mean allowing your team to be beaten into a hole 2-0 at home by Burnley not a great look but the last five minute recovery is the type of thing that okay you know what I mean I understand that you screwed things up at the start but uh, finishing well is very important they can thank Jeff Hendrick for giving away that penalty, uh, like uh, Marcus Rashford does take a Mo Salah esque dive. Uh, I've got diving says Jurgen Klopp. By the way, you don't need to bleed for it to be a foul in football. He says I'm, I'm, the, the the dive I'm kind of referring to is the one Mo Salah did against Brighton when Pascal Gross takes him down stupidly in the box, uh, which was a penalty, but also you kind of make the most of it, which I think maybe you kind of need to do in football at the moment. So it's not really cheating the referee as such, Rashford, last night, but he did go down like a sack of spuds, there's no question about that. And Jeff Hendrick stupidly put his arm on his shoulder, which was relatively needless, I think, in the situation. Uh, Pogba buries the penalty, and then Victor Lindelof pops up with the equaliser, who has kind of turned into a player where you're like, this guy is actually good at football, we didn't know this. Mm. The, the sort of uh, general improvement uh, has kind of manifested itself in the defenders as well, but has it done so in the defence as a unit? I think there's major question marks over that still. Yeah, not done yet. Um, Shane Stapleton retweeted the stat last night. Man City have now dropped more points this season than the whole of last. 16 already this season, 14 all year last year. So, what are they, three months, four months left to go? That's not great. Uh, okay, so we do have a pair of tickets to give away to Ireland against England. Uh, all you need to do is retweet or share the stream. You can uh, follow us at Off the Ball AM on Twitter. You can tag your mate. And we're going to run this for 24 hours. The winner will be announced on Thursday's OTBM. Just use the hashtag OTBM and uh, tell us you want those tickets. We would um, ideally like you to share our stream on uh, Twitter or indeed on Facebook. And uh, we can also search through the YouTube comments as well. This is uh, from your buddies at Clenis. Go on. Yeah, exactly. Two, uh, two great gifts. Uh, well, one great gift really for one lucky winner because uh, you can't, we can't uh, share the happiness between multiple people. You know, it, it would be cruel if we said, no, you can only have one ticket. So it is a pair of tickets, premium tickets, no less, uh, to Ireland against England. Are you going? I am. That you kept that quiet? I did, yeah. I only found out yesterday during the show. Well, congratulations. It's uh, lucky for some people, isn't it, this week, that uh, you get to go and witness a great moment like that. I've never been to a Six Nations game. All right. I just, I just stare cap in hand outside the Aviva every week, and I'm like, oh, back home to watch it on my television once again. So that, that's going to be me on, on Saturday. I mean, they still don't show all the replays for the stuff that isn't on TMO. Still, going to live sports events is not quite as good an experience as it is at sitting at home. Sorry. Shut up. For, for like the, to say that you don't want to be in Ireland against England. No, no, I do. I mean, but like, you're at the, particularly in Croke Park, you're at games, you're like, what happened? Oh, but it's a far better experience than sitting at home. No, Way better. No, it's not. It, oh, come on. Like, if you're, uh, so... You're saying that you'd rather watch Ireland against England at home this Saturday? No, I'm saying there's definitely, like... There's I would definitely, take your tickets off of you. There's definitely an improvement in the match day experience to be had from showing the TV coverage, because that's what people want to see. 
and they're used to it. I see your. I, I, I. To be fair, I can see your point. And also, but it doesn't unless, make it a, a better experience unless you pay an extra tenner or whatever it is now for the ref link. You have to clear with the referee saying. Does it, cost, does it cost 10 euro to actually buy one of those things? Obviously, Maybe the, it's 8, but sure, you know, kind of coinage. So. Coinage, yeah. Uh, I, I can see it, like, there's certainly sometimes when you'd be in Croke Park and you're like, yeah, we, I need to see that thing again. But if you sit in the press that box... That guy over there is dead. He's lying there. He's bleeding. What happened? Yeah. Oh, nobody saw nothing. The, the main point here is that I've got absolutely no sympathy for your first world problems, talking about not being able to see the replays. Uh, when I'm sitting at home on Saturday, getting to see the replay time and time again, I will have zero sympathy as you're sitting there in the Aviva Stadium, wondering it's whether not an, or not that was a high tackle. It's not an either or it's not neither or there are these there are, we can improve all our, a lot collectively that's all that's all I'm saying Feel my heart bleeds gotta have higher ambition in life uh, what's coming up for you we'll tell you now it's a great show today we've got Annalise Murphy coming up uh, a little bit later on around about 9 o'clock going to do the sports news with Darren around about 8.50 today Darren Cave the Ulster and uh, Ireland Centre is going to join us to talk about um, donuts and coffee yeah, not, not a very healthy sideline for a sports person to have, but we'll get into that a little bit later on. Uh, Going to talk football and uh, the genius that is Rafa Benitez thwarting Manchester City. Uh, Daniel Harris is going to join us to uh, talk about everything else and also, obviously, a little bit of uh, Manchester United. Now, let's get into the sports pages. Going to start with the Examiner this morning. Tyneside torture, it says. City's Newcastle slip-up hands clear title edge to Liverpool. And then Donald Lennon, this is the most anticipated Six Nations I can remember for some time. Uh, and then they've also got a feature on um, Ulster's glory days in Europe. There's also some great comments from Tomás O'Shea. I'm not sure if it's carried in the examiner here about there being no confidence in Cork at the moment in football. Uh, Cork's not really a football county, he said this time last year. It's predominantly a hurling county, he said, and he's standing over that. Um, there was a few good lines where he was talking about... Um, I'll find it in the other piece a little bit later on. Uh, he said he doesn't want to be seen as a carry man being critical of Cork. You were brought up to supposedly hate Cork and see them as your biggest rival, but feck it like, I'd love to see them going well. So, uh, he's teaching and coaching in the school. I don't know, is Tomás O'Shea the future for Cork football? Should they get him involved? Yes. They, he, okay, maybe he's not the future for Cork football, but should they get him involved? Yes. Any sort of expertise that's hanging in around their county at the moment, which Tomás O'Shea constitutes, they should get that person involved. There is a reluctance and a natural reluctance to get anybody from Kerry involved with Cork GEA, and maybe they need to get relegated to Division 3 for that to seem necessary. But I think at the moment, you know, he's unless he is an inside agent, he's not really doing a good job of covering up uh, being an agent if he's saying stuff like that. If, if he is, like, uh, working for Kerry GEA's uh, version, if he's, like, 007 for Kerry GEA, then uh, he's probably going to say something different in the press than, uh, than what that is. Well, you wouldn't send somebody's high profile to Cork if you didn't respect them as much. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you like see... They send you to Cork. That, well, yeah. Well, they really. sent you to Dublin. No, Obviously, yeah. they're not doing a great job there. <laughs> You've just blown my cover. Well, that's exactly what they want you to think. Sorry, there was one thing I did mean to bring up about... Um, so, yesterday, we, we, it emerged that Owen had been cheating on us with uh, a rival broadcaster on Monday night on Terrace Talk um, on Radio Kerry. It was his, it was his Radio Kerry Terrace Talk. It was Radio Kerry debut? I think so, yeah. All oh, right. Sure. Well, look, oh, no, I would have been on Radio Kerry as like a kid speaking to Santa. Yeah? Yeah. That was, that was good times. Got to speak to the big man himself on Christmas Eve, 2003 maybe? 2002? 2003, just when, um, uh, what's that movie that you knew really well? Elf? <laughs> uh, uh, the Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Austin Powers. Austin Powers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the first time that came out. Anyway, mad that you were talking to Santa and watching Austin Powers at the same time. But anyway, um, 
So this is effectively your debut. It's a big, big, big deal. Terrace Talk, obviously, legendary. If you missed the show last evening, listen back on the radio. Kerry website, we had a fantastic lineup, including at Ron Kerry, Ron at Bernie Breen, at Thomas Scott, Brian Sheen, Barry Don, and what? What? Where are you? You got dropped, Owen. Oh, my gosh. You got dropped from the list of people who are on the show. They that cut you sickening. out. They edited you out Nobody after your told performance. Me about this. Did you libel somebody? Did you say something bad? Uh, I did, you, did you reveal the truth too much? I uh, used the word defensive football when describing uh, Kerry's play on Sunday, so I don't think I'm ever going to be invited back <clears> into the county again. Let alone Dropped by Terrace session. Talk, the scandal. We still love you. Right, uh, on to the uh, Times Ireland edition. Uh, Van der Fleer to get an over O'Brien, so there's a bit of team news beginning to come out, certainly the speculation anyway, um, from Kieran Kennedy and Kieran Kennedy and Kieran O'Rahlig is that it's going to be Josh Van der Fleer with O'Brien potentially starting on the bench. Now, there is also one line here. Uh, Schmidt's first choice fullback, Rob Kearney, sat out the Portugal training camp in order to get some minutes under his belt with Leinster, but failed to convince against Scarlets. Still, Schmidt places a huge amount of value in the veterans' experience, particularly in a key fixture. Alison, Larmer and Andrew Conway are Kearney's main rivals for the full-back spot. Wow. Times Ireland have not got the same information as the Irish Times because the Irish Times are saying that Henshaw is set for a full-back role against England. So, um, a little bit of intrigue coming out. Sometimes I wonder if the Irish camp are like sending their ravens out in different directions to... Well, the, the messages are different. Well, the, the, the ravens, and it's a good way of finding out which raven is going to which particular journalist. Now, I don't think they foresaw what the Irish Times did, and they were like, you can't actually decipher which raven has got which message, because we're going to put two of uh, the recipients on the one byline. So they put Gavin Comiskey and Jerry Thornley together on the byline there, so the RFU have no idea... Which one got the information? It's great, isn't it? Uh, all the intrigue. All agreed, price rises, says Horan. So, uh, John Horan, the GAA president, came out fighting yesterday in an hour-long um, appearance at the Shannad. Uh, he became the first GAA president to address Shannad Aaron and then listen for about an hour as senators mostly spoke in positive terms about the association. So, basically, the senators used the opportunity to grandstand and uh, tell everybody how great they are, which is kind of exactly how Irish politics has worked for about 100 years. Um, tickets are now 30% more expensive than they were at the height of the Celtic Tiger, said uh, Rose Conway-Walsh, a Sinn Féin senator. But then Paddy Coffey and Aidan Davitt, two fellow senators, took the opposite view and argued that the GA ticket prices still represent a great value for money. So, there you go. Uh, Horn did have something else, did he? <laughs> oh, they sold 3,000 more season tickets. It is hilarious that like, when somebody as high-profile as, as John Horan goes into one of those Shannon committees, the quotes that come out are from the senators and not from John Horan. Like, I know there were John Horan quotes that came out, but it just turns into... John Horan was basically a conduit for senators to put across their own views. Oh, man, it's so, it's so crap. Those, those bits where the senators don't say anything except fill their eight minutes of talk with, you know, well, when I went down and I traded that team, I sponsored that team, and, you know, my family gave this money here, and... Jeez, GA is great, and our uh, <laughs> any tickets. Well, as we've known, uh, senators don't get tickets for all Ireland finals. Do they not? R- remember, they're not uh, all guaranteed. Remember Mayo official two years ago? What's her name? Oh, she was. Was she senator? Yeah, she was a senator. Well, I don't want to get through because there's a, a senator I have in mind. I don't want to get it wrong, but um, she was asking for tickets and didn't get them. Is that yeah. what happened? Yeah, or uh, was wasn't there something? Anfield Scrap. Hey, get it? Did you get it? Yeah. What is it? Anfield Rap. Hey. Anfield Scrap. League leaders Liverpool can overcome tricky Leicester test. Uh, I don't even know what price they are at this stage. But, um, and then Harrington forced to take a rain check with sizing John. So disappointment 
with the news that Sizing John's much-anticipated return to action will not come this weekend at the Dublin Racing Festival after Connections decided not to run the Gold Cup winner from 2017 at Leopardstown. There had been a chance a nine-year-old would have his first start since December 2017, but uh, Jessica Harrington revealed she would wait. She, sorry, the wait would go on until underfoot conditions are considered suitable. So still, the weather just not great. I've already done the times. And then to finish up on this... Um, Tip roll out big hitters and new drive to fund herders. This is a great story from Colin Keyes. Commercial board recruits high-profile figures in bid to find new revenue sources for senior side. So, uh, Niall Quinn, Alan Quinlan, Louis Fitzgerald, owner of the Louis Fitzgerald Group, AIB Chief Executive Declan O'Rourke, AIB Head of Corporate Banking Simon's Group, Mick O'Keefe from Taneo, Michael Madden and Brendan Murphy, who all have executive roles in Taneo. John Tierney, Chairman of the Corporate Subcommittee of the Tipperary Supporters Club, was also involved. And... Um, so that's a high-powered group basically going to go and raise some money for tip hurlers. They're going to have a gala dinner in the Mansion House in April to honour the eight living captains from their 27 All-Ireland hurling successes. And it seems that it is specific to hurling, is it? Yes, it is. Um, the Funder Hurler says the headline there rather than the GA County as a whole. Uh, did Snail come on board for both codes or for just for the hurlers? I presume so. It's... Um, it's a, it's, there's been a real the last six months for temporary hurling has just been one big statement of intent really uh, ever since Sheedy was appointed since Tanea have come on board and now this yesterday they're they're going after it they're not going to leave any stone unturned that's for sure uh, we're going to move on to some of the tabloids we'll start with the Irish Daily Star this morning Tune in the dumps Pep stunned by Pep by defeat says the headline here uh, and you've also got GEA Chief Bax Hike GEA President John Horn has revealed that a whopping 3,000 plus additional season tickets were sold this year despite the recent price hike controversy uh, but the season tickets are at the exact same price as they were last year so I don't think that makes any difference whatsoever in fact more people will probably buy season tickets because it's cheaper in relation to no you're, you're just making sense there Ron. oh sorry I, I thought I got my facts wrong uh, back page of the mirror is rich man poor man tunes shock for Pep hands cop a huge title boost and uh, for you Emiliano Premier League's tributes the tragic card of signing as well ok 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 ok. sorry so breaking news so uh, Digger was listening to uh, Owen on Terrace Talk on Monday night and oh. he says Terrace Talk had him on as a hero coming home they kept saying we know now you're always interviewing national and international stars up there in Dublin Owen started off the abusive text of the show about the style of the win 24 hours after Keane's first game wow look at that well, dropping I, the bomb and walking out no I did, I did clarify it's your big fancy ways from Dublin I did, I did clarify in the programme that using the term defensive is a, is a very loaded term. You're There's no, nothing wrong with being defensive. Like I'm being defensive of my performance on Terrace Talk. Yeah, right I know. Now. I mean, you get that scar from the, the mean streets of um, A lack Tralee. of defence. A lack of defence right there. <laughs> After what you were saying about Tralee before Christmas, that happened. And then I don't know what's going to happen the next, on the Terrace of the next carry game. Well, I've survived one axe attack. I can survive more. Uh, back page of The Sun is Agent Rafa, ex-Liverpool boss, hands cop, huge title boost. Who's a bigger double agent, Rafa Benitez or Tommaso Shea? I mean, there's either, Tomas would need to win an All-Ireland with Cork. No, but, ooh, that, well, that went too far. Or uh, ends the five in a row. That's, that's basically the equivalent of what Rafa's done, is in, in terms of ending Manchester City title hope and paving the way for Liverpool to win their first Premier League title. Uh, back page of the Herald is shock at City slump. Rafa Joy's Newcastle win hands pool advantage and Ole's men back from the brink as Manchester United fight from 2-0 down against Burnley to draw 2-all at Old Trafford. Back page of the Irish Daily Mail has got some news on the England team. Starman Teo and triple injury blow for England. So England have injury concerns uh, ahead of uh, the Six Nations opener against Ireland, of course. Inside centre Ben Teo has a side strain. 
that's going to pave the way for Manu Tuilagi to be restored to the midfield. And in an additional blow, blindside flanker Brad Shields has failed to recover from his own side strain to ensure Mark Wilson will probably start in the back row. And uh, Joe Kokonasiga has also yet to reach full fitness from a knee problem. So uh, things are looking up from an Irish perspective when it comes to the fitness battle for Saturday. Uh, front page of the Daily Telegraph sports section is City stunned. Liverpool can go seven points clear tonight after Guardiola's men pay penalty on Tyneside. And finally, the back page of The Guardian is Benitez delivers title gift to Reds. Newcastle derail City, now over to Liverpool. Uh, Aina Finn says, uh, Tony always has the right Raven. I'd love to see Anshaw 15. As Quinny says, get the best players on the pitch. Yes, conversation we had yesterday. It was like, why not, you know, see if you can get... Because he's got world-class centres. He's festooned with world-class centres. And if Robbie Henshaw is also a world-class full-back, it'd be good to find that out now. Yeah, I think we'd be thankful for finding it out now, regardless... Uh, of the results, should we get to the autumn time and we're in a similar position, injury trouble either at fullback or uh, maybe in midfield as well, or loaded in midfield once again. So, yeah, I, I don't know. We we're going to be speaking to Darren Cave a little bit later on and uh, asking him about the situation, about whether or not he sees uh, Robbie Henshaw as a, as a fullback. So, interesting to get his take. Well, that was, uh, that was lucky. It's all Cody says, uh, look at Eddie Brennan and Leach. I know they aren't a direct comparison or competitor to Kilkenny, but surely any experience Tomas O'Shea gets elsewhere benefits when he's eventually lured back by the cute Kerry horse. That's a good point. A very good point. So he'll actually become a triple agent. So he'll, he's now working as an agent inside the Cork bounds and then will have gleaned all that information to bring back to Kerry and then could become an agent on behalf of Cork within Kerry. Oh, all right. They'd turn him. Yeah. Wow. Who knows? We're going to be uh, with Daniel Harris next to talk football after uh, a tempestuous night in the Premier League. First, though, we were also at the launch of the little LGFA National Football Leagues yesterday. Cork's recently retired 11-time All-Ireland winner Breach Stack expects her county and the Galway footballers to have very strong 2019s. Um, well, look, obviously, uh, you know, there's fantastic talent still in that car team. And, um, you know, like even last year, I think we counted up that there was something like 67 All-Ireland medals in that team last year. None of them have stepped away. Um, you know, there's a lot of minors that are after coming on board. Um, it's, you know, look, I think even the experience of last year's final alone, um, I think everyone could appreciate it for the fantastic display of football that it was and the strength and the speed. Like, the speed was just phenomenal, like up and down the, up and down the pitch. And um, I just think they'll learn a lot from it. Those younger girls will definitely take a lot of substance from it. And, you know, I, I can definitely see bright things in the future and, you know, hopefully hopefully another All-Ireland captured, you so know, in years to come. So she's not ruling out well, no, court. She's <laughs> saying they're there. They're not going away the other, anywhere. The other team actually I do think that is definitely one to watch though would be Galway um, I suppose that Galway have always been there thereabouts you know for many years and I think you know if you look back on any of the league campaigns Galway have always you know really really pushed everyone to the pin of their collar I remember a couple of years ago we played Galway and it went to a replay in the league final um, they were just a phenomenal team and Galway are always such a traditional footballing side um, they always have great talent and I went to the All-Ireland minor final last year between Corking and, and Galway and and I just remarked on how brilliant some of their minors were. Yeah, so that's pretty stack yesterday speaking at the launch of the little LGFA National Leagues. Um, and uh, plenty of good games in that fairly similar situation too, where every game between the uh, teams in the first division are all good. And uh, you've got to wait a good while for the championship to actually kick off because it's on the same provincial structure as um, the men's championship. And that's on the back of many of the sports pages today. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But indeed, if you've got an opinion on that or you want to share it with us, you can get us on Twitter 
at Off the Ball, and that's also where you can pick up a pair of tickets to see Ireland against England in the Six Nations. But we need you to share the stream and tag who you'd bring uh, along with it. But let's go back to last night and the football. Daniel Harris joins us this morning. Um, let's talk about Rafa Benitez, uh, because what he managed to do and what he's managing to do at Newcastle is I'm fairly unparalleled as far as I can see in, in football history where he's managing to shield one of the most repugnant ownership groups. Well, actually, no, now that I think about it, Alex Ferguson did exactly the same thing for a long period of time where uh, he managed to make everybody believe that supporting a football team was about supporting the team and the manager as opposed to actually, you know, helping the, uh, the evil empire to continue. So fair play to Rafa Benitez is the uh, short way of me trying to say what I'm saying. Yeah, he's doing an amazing job. I don't think that anyone really thinks Newcastle would stay up last season if it wasn't for him. And similarly, they've got a really good chance of staying up this season again, partly because there are three teams that might be worse, but primarily because he's a good manager and Newcastle are below his standard of manager in terms of the way that they're prepared to go about being a football club. Of course, Newcastle are a great, famous old football club, so I don't say that to insult Newcastle and call them a small club or anything like that. But the ambition of their owner is small, and he's very lucky to have a manager of the caliber of Benitez. And uh, we saw that again yesterday. To come to come back from a goal down against Manchester City and win the game is is phenomenal. I suspect you were probably watching the Man United game. But I, 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 is there a template that Newcastle have shown the rest of the Premier League here when it comes to playing against City? It was a very so it was a bank of five, a bank of four, and then a, a lone striker. And they did go goal down really early, which normally the lesser team kind of says, OK, well, that's fair enough. You've scored. That's the game over from our perspective. Um, I think that as much, rather than there being a pro forma for beating, for beating City, I think what we're seeing actually is City not beating themselves. But if you look at the games they've lost this season, look at the game they lost to Chelsea. They played pretty well in the first half, but they were playing. They forgot they're in a match. They were just playing a game. They forgot they're in a match and they ended up conceding. When they lost to Palace, when they lost to Leicester, when they lost last night, they lost from a goal up. And that tells you that something is not right there. City are much too good to be doing that. And it suggests that, that mentally, I don't know if they think they're better than they are. I don't know if, they, if they're taking liberties in the way that they're playing. I sort of did feel that against Chelsea, um, where Guardiola didn't pick a centre forward, even though he had one on the bench. And he just thought that City would play nicely and eventually the goals would come. And City played like that and they got caught. And um, I think that that is what we're seeing, that they look to me like a team that is believing their own publicity, that is believing that they're better than they are. And what really happened was last season, everything went in their favour. And that's not to say they weren't brilliantly prepared and Guardiola's not a brilliant manager and they don't have brilliant players. But time after time after time, when it comes on top, they are, they are weak. We saw it against Liverpool in the Champions League. We saw it against United when they could have won the league in when they could have won the league against their local rivals. And it's looking like we're going to see it again. They shouldn't be seven points if Liverpool, if Liverpool win tonight. They'll be seven points behind. They're not seven points worse than Liverpool in terms of the quality of what they are, but in terms of the mentality, that is clearly exactly where they deserve to be because. There's a handy metric for determining where teams deserve to be in the league table, and it's called the league table, and that is where they are. I think you're, you're definitely onto something there, and I do wonder if Pep Guardiola and his relationship with perfection is actually a damaging thing for someone like Manchester City, that you look at the couple of games they lost over Christmas, the Andres Townsend goal, the Ricardo Pereira goal, two 
ridiculous strikes really that ordinarily don't happen in sport but it seemed to kind of knock City back a little bit the Salomon Rondon goal last night was relatively bizarre as well he, he could have ballooned that ball anywhere who, who knows what would have happened and it seems that when that one moment of imperfection i.e. conceding a goal that they perhaps shouldn't concede seeps in it kind of creates a sense of crisis within this Manchester City team that they hold themselves to an impossible standard which is ultimately resulting in bad results. Um, yeah, I mean, when you're when you're seeking perfection rather than seeking to win, then when not everything is according to plan, then sometimes that can be a problem. And I think that's what we're seeing. If they're not, they're not, they've forgotten how to find a way to win. And last season, they were never really playing under pressure because no team was able to stay with them. They set such a pace from the beginning of the season, they didn't play under pressure. And once you're playing under pressure, as they are now, because Liverpool have put them under pressure, you're not going to achieve perfection. And you're going to need to you're going to need to hang in there, and you're going to need to play with intensity, and you're going to need to find the way. And um, Newcastle needed the points; they played with intensity, they had a plan, and clearly City weren't good enough to get beyond that because talent won't always do it for you. You need more than talent; you need application, you need belief, you need mentality. And for City to lose the games that they're losing from a goal up just suggests that all is not well there. So, how do you fix that? And who, who do you blame? Um, it's not so much a matter of apportioning blame because generally when things go wrong in any walk of life, in anything, there'll be numerous people who were at fault and also you have to give credit to their opponents. But I guess the way it works in football and in team sports is that you blame the manager because he sends the players out to play and um, he's sending them out with a particular mentality and he also has the opportunity to change things and he wasn't able to do that. But at the same time, the players hit certain levels last season and they're not hitting them this season and they're all responsible. Each one of them is responsible for performing to that level. And um, I think what City lack is they're like bastards. And I think we've said this before, that people that stop, people that stop bad circumstances becoming terrible circumstances, people that make sure that if you have a bad 20 minutes, you still get out of it nil-nil or one-nil. And um, City don't really have that. And Pep Guardiola's first team at Barcelona, they did have that. They had Puyol, they had Busquets. Um, at Bayern Munich, he did an amazing job at Bayern Munich, but at the same time, there wasn't a lot of competition. Mm. And throughout mm. his career, look at, look at how he responded when Mourinho put him under pressure. And um, it wasn't very pleasant pressure. The way that Mourinho behaved wasn't nice, it wasn't gentlemanly, but Guardiola didn't respond particularly well to the kind of pressure that Mourinho put him under either. And it's not to say that Pep Guardiola is not a great football manager because demonstrably he is, but the majority of like, his great achievements have come with circumstances that have been more or less perfect. And yeah. when they haven't been perfect, so like when Bayern Munich got done by Atletico in the Champions League, when they got done by Madrid in the Champions League, they haven't found a way. When City got done by Liverpool in the Champions League, they haven't hung in there, they haven't found a way to get it done. And it's a problem that keeps reoccurring, which suggests that it's a pattern rather than a coincidence. Yeah, okay. Um, oh, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier on, and it felt like um, you know, we were asking the question about signings. Uh, if there were any bastards out there that he could get his hands on in the next 24 hours, then now would be the time to do it. Well, yeah, ready-made bastards. I'm not sure how many of them there are out there. And somebody who can also slot into a Pep Guardiola's side that isn't exactly... Uh, 
I'm not, I'm not sure it is an easy thing for any footballer, despite your ability to actually just slip on into. It, like they, they play with a specific style of play. It goes the same goes for Liverpool at the moment, and it is on vogue at the moment in terms of high pressing, in terms of your ability without the ball, whatever it might be. I'm just not sure, regardless of the qualities that you have, that you're able to just slip into a Pep Guardiola side. And I think because of the cult of the manager now, I think that's why that's half the reason why we've seen the January transfer window kind of fade into irrelevance that mid-season signings just haven't been successful in recent years. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Daniel, if there was a ready-made bastard out there that uh, Man City could hire in the next 24 hours, it's probably worth it for their league title aspirations. It might be somebody who could potentially not be available to them. Or it might be, who knows? But like, you've got to try and do something to inject a bit of bastardry into the team, right? Yeah, I think so. And it's really, I mean, if Liverpool win tonight, they're seven points behind. That's not an insurmountable gap, although they do have the problem of they don't get to be to sort Liverpool themselves again. But seven points isn't insurmountable. But you look at City and you think, do they have the the nastiness, the cruelty, the bloody mindedness to hang in there and wait for Liverpool to falter? Because Liverpool, for whatever Jurgen Klopp's trying to say, they're under a phenomenal amount of pressure. They've not won the league in 29 years, um, and this is an amazing chance for them now. If City can stick with them and City are there for when Liverpool don't win a game and Liverpool aren't going to win every game between now and the end of the season. If City are there, then City can, can City can make hay when that happens. But they don't have the demeanour of a team that is going to stick it out until that point. And I'm not sure that the signing of one player is going to do anything about that. I mean, what we're really seeing from Liverpool is what we saw from City last season. They're not as devastating as City and they're not as good as City, but... More or less, everything is going in their favour at the moment. So they hit a hot streak when City were without David Silva, Fernandinho and De Bruyne all at the same time. And that was what enabled them to establish their lead. They haven't really had as many. They had a few injuries in defence, but they weren't playing anyone particularly good at the time of those injuries. And the bounce of the ball, like the, the seeing them given penalties they're getting, um, and things are going in Liverpool's favour, but... If City are able to put them under pressure, that won't necessarily continue for the rest of the season in the same way City wouldn't have necessarily been able to keep going like that last season, except there was no one good enough to actually stoke up the pressure on them. And uh, if City are able to do that, Liverpool will falter. They might not falter enough, but they won't win every game. It's just very hard to see City doing that, particularly once Champions League starts again, because they're going to be looking at it and thinking, well, let's do that, let's try and do that instead. Yeah, yeah, and that's fair enough. I should uh, talk to you briefly about Man United's performance last night. Um, reading your tweets, the, the best part about the evening was the fact that, uh, you know, it, there was definitely a throwback to happier times when Manchester United would find themselves in a hole and the rest of the world would be like, oh, we're going to start watching this now just to make sure that I don't miss one of the remarkable comebacks. So there's a bit of the magic there from what happened last night, but there's also still a sense that they don't quite have the depth of squad for Solskjaer to be able to actually pick not his strongest team. Um, yeah, he can, he can rotate because we saw it at Arsenal on Friday, but I felt like he took one liberty too many. and Not playing Pereira, who is a young kid and he was giving him an opportunity in a game that United would expect to win. But the front three was a Mourinho front three. And they United looked more like scoring than they did under Mourinho because they were getting men in the box. In the end, it was probably one change too many. So that um, Lukaku wasn't going to play, Martial was. But then Martial got injured in training. But then at that point, you have to think about trying to have as many of that front, as many of that front three that worked, Lingard, Martial, Rashford, as you can. And what he did was he brought Matter in for Lingard. That was a fair change to make, but you can't then move Rashford out to the left as well. I thought it would have made more sense to play Rashford through the middle and play Sanchez 
than they would have made than they made to play Lukaku. And we saw that. But what we also saw was we saw what happens when you put teams under pressure from the beginning. So although United didn't make very many clear chances in the game, Burnley had to spend pretty much all of the game defending. And when, when it comes to the last 10 minutes and minds are tired and bodies are tired, you see mistakes like the one Jeff Hendrick made when he fouled Jesse Lingard. He didn't need to make that foul, but the amount of pressure he'd been put under over the course of the game, the amount of running he'd done, the amount of concentrating he'd had to do, leads, leads players to panic. And that's why United got a penalty when, to me, they didn't particularly look like they were going to score. It looked like they'd run out of ideas, but they kept at it. And that was something that's different. And that was often the way that it happened under Fergie. They might have the opponent on the rack, but they wouldn't necessarily be creating chance after chance. But the hard work, the graph that they put in in the early part of the game paid them out in the end in terms of an error. And then once they got the first goal, it didn't look quite a lot like they were going to get the second goal. And um, another five minutes and they probably got the third goal. But it's weird because although Solskjaer made a mistake, I felt, in the selection, he ends up coming up smelling of roses again because they managed to find a way to get a point. And... Um, if they can beat Leicester at the weekend and City beat Arsenal, then that point will be the point that lifts them a space in the table. So it still worked out quite well because people are asking, well, United haven't even been behind yet under Solskjaer. What are they going to do when they're behind? And we saw an emphatic answer to that. And slowly, one by one, um, I was very circumspect when he got the job, much as I wanted him to do it and much as I felt he had a lot of the qualities that would make the job work. But one by one, he's ticking off all the questions that you might have against him and I actually think now he's probably the favourite for that job and things would have to go quite wrong for him not to wind up getting it. When you look back at the great Man United teams that Ferguson built, he always had a central midfielder who was capable or a pair of central midfielders who were capable of dictating the pace. And at the moment it doesn't really look like this team is built. It clearly isn't built the same way. It, wasn't, it was never intended to be built the same way because that's not how Mourinho wanted his teams to play. But I would... I don't know if it's an assumption correct or not, but you would think that Solskjaer does want to get back to being able to control the pace of games and that would suggest that they will be in the market for central midfielders of that type. Am I right about that? Is that like is that is is he inheriting that philosophy down to trying to create and buy midfielders like Carrick, like Scholes, like Keane in particular? Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, the, 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 for, the forward line is good enough to cause any team in the world trouble, but the midfield isn't good enough to protect the defence, and the defence isn't good enough to protect the goalkeeper. And so United are always going to struggle to control the game against a properly good standard of opposition. So it's frustrating that um, that United aren't that Solskjaer has not been given some money to spend um, right now because um, United have got PSG, who are an excellent team, who are better than United, but they're not unbeatable. And particularly if Neymar misses both legs, then of that game, then you've actually got quite a good situation in that you can you can cater for Mbappe. Obviously, he might do something that you can't stop, but they've got one extremely dangerous player in Mbappe, and it's very different if they've got two extremely dangerous players, one on each wing. You know, I don't have any combination of players in midfield that can do anything about that. But if Mbappe, if you're looking to stop Mbappe, then that is possible. And for United not to try and find an upgrade on Herrera, an upgrade on Matic or an upgrade on Phil Jones is frustrating because of the momentum that they have now, the form that they're in. And there are plenty of players in world football that United could buy who would improve their midfield, who United could play enough money to attract. But it's clearly, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Um, but I'm sure that if Solskjaer stays on, and even if he doesn't, United will hire someone who understands the way that United should play and the way that the best teams play nowadays. And they will go and buy the kind of midfield player who can help you control the game. As I said, an upgrade on Matic, an upgrade on Herrera or both. All right. Tanya, great stuff this morning. Thanks a million. Cheers.
Go see you again. Daniel Harris giving us some thoughts this morning. Uh, Barry Moore talking about rugby says, Henshaw great at fullback but maybe exposed with his positioning. He likes to break the line for potential intercepts. Good to see him try it at this stage before the World Cup. Uh, Robbie Henshaw intercept try under the post against England. Yes! Give me some of that. Give me some of that. Uh, yeah, that would be beautiful. How many intercept score tries? Uh, intercept tries we scored last Six Nations, like the Stockdale one against Wales. Like we, another one. Uh, I think that, I, think, I, I have. How many of our twenty tries were intercepts? So no, I'm not sure. Know, just, so let me let me just flick through this bible of tries that uh, Ireland scored in 2018. Everybody should be trying to buy Angola Kante in the next 24 hours. If he's not happy there, if there's a chance that you might be able to get him out of there, like Chelsea will take the money. We'll talk about that a little bit later because we need to get to this right now. Volkswagen proud sponsors of Irish rugby brought Darren Cave into us yesterday afternoon for a chat about the form of Will Addison, Ireland against England, and his donut shop in Belfast. Here's how it went. So Volkswagen, proud partner of Irish Rugby, will be at the Aviva Stadium this Saturday as Ireland take on England in their Six Nations home opener. Come down to test your rugby skills and win great prizes and see Volkswagen Ireland's social channels for more information. And with thanks to Volkswagen, Darren Cave has popped in. How are you, Darren? Not too bad, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, I'm not sure when the last time we were chatting to you was, but certainly I was just saying to you before we came on air, the last time I was listening to you was probably doing punditry before Christmas. You're all back to full fitness now, obviously. It was a thumb injury that kept you off for around eight weeks. Are you back up to the full full fitness now? Yeah, I broke, uh, broke my thumb uh, in about October time. Was quite na- ended up being quite nasty. I was out for about eight weeks. Um, and then, yeah, I've been back for the last few while. I haven't probably played as much rugby as I'd have liked, but uh, Stuart McCluskey and Will Addison have been playing some good stuff in the centre for Ulster, so can't complain. So I'm spending more time uh, watching uh, rugby and talking about rugby at the minute, unfortunately. Is that something you deliberately tried to do, especially when you're kind of forced out of the game for a little while, just to try and uh, figure out a few other avenues that might be useful to you down the line? Um, it wasn't something, I suppose, that it wasn't the injury, it's just something I am interested in. Um, I suppose when you've been around professional rugby as long as I have, you uh, you do pick up a thing or two about it. And uh, what's great about Irish rugby at the minute is there's such a buzz around the national team and and the four provinces, and I enjoy talking about it. I uh, now that I'm a bit further removed from the national team, I like any other fan and any other. Uh, I wouldn't call myself a journalist <laughs> yet. Uh, get excited about the games. I get excited to see who Joe's going to select. Mm. Um, and I I, I get um, I get. Kind carried away with the whole hype of the whole thing so uh, I enjoy it it's great yeah for sure that distance kind of helps a little bit as well I'm sure when, when you're talking about Ulster as well maybe it's tough when you're inside in the camp a little bit yeah exactly I mean um, when you're on the fringe of something and you're not involved um, it can be tough because you feel left out you feel like you could be there you feel like you should be playing and there was times in, in uh, my Ireland career uh, and in my rugby career where you're just missing out and you're seeing what's happening on the pitch and while you're happy for the team and you're happy for the guys you do feel a little bit left out whereas um, I'm so far removed from the Irish setup now that uh, I sort of have no um, there's not one part of me that feels like you know I should be on the pitch or deserve to be on the pitch so I, I just, as I say, I just love it. I just love uh, seeing uh, a because I know some of the players pretty well, and b just because I'm an Irish rugby fan. On the end of the day, is Dan McFarland someone who encourages you to do things outside of the rugby pitch, especially when you might have a, a little less to do when you're injured? Yeah, I mean Dan is. Uh, Dan, first of all, he's a very intelligent guy, uh, but and he's very into uh, psychology and stuff like that. And it's something that I think is growing throughout the four provinces, not just through Dan McFarlane, but through Rugby Players Ireland. They're always encouraging people to develop their skill sets, do other things, and 
I'm not too sure what I want to do when I stop playing, but um, I think uh, you know, getting a bit more involved in, in the media and stuff is certainly uh, something that I enjoy. And um, you know, I don't know if it's something that'll that'll happen more when I retire. Because you're also involved in a coffee and donut shop. Yeah, yeah, Guild Shop Coffee and Donuts. It was a former teammate, uh, Callum Black, who's now at Worcester, and it was kind of a. It was kind of a, an idea that got out of control, you know. <laughs> you're chatting, and yeah, it'd be fun to do this, wouldn't it? It'd be great crack. Yeah, we should do it. And the uh, next thing, we paid a deposit. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's been great. Um, we actually, Callum got the idea because you know what's happened in Dublin over the last few years. Like yeah. Belfast is pretty much just like five or ten years behind Dublin. Like any trend in Dublin, I think you could take the Belfast and be ahead of the game. Really? Is that, is that how it tends to work? Yeah, that's, how, that's definitely how I would view it, and I think a great right. example of that, not only the coffee scene, which is growing in Belfast, but massive in Dublin, but donuts. I think there was an article in one of the Irish papers within the last year, and it was sort of said, RIP to the cupcake. And it, this, the gist was how there's between 25 and 30 donut stores in Dublin at the mm. minute. Um, but th- there wasn't in Belfast, but you know, handmade donuts—they are, they are delicious. Yeah. So it was a bit of a, a gap in the market, tagged along with the growing coffee culture in Belfast. And for me, the biggest thing has just been learning. Um, when when you're playing and going in and playing rugby every day, it's a great life, but it's not the real world. So I've learned a lot. And you know, when I come to put a, a CV together, and I'm able to say that I've opened a business and. Uh, to be honest, a lot of the time I still don't know what's going on, but I'm doing employee pension contributions and all this kind of stuff, so I think it bodes well. Yeah, the donuts have really taken over Dublin. I'm not sure, were you aware of the, the Krispy Kreme controversy that uh, it essentially had to get shut down for its 24-hour status last year because the locals were getting woken up because people in the drive through were just honking the horn constantly. I heard, was this, it wasn't, was this the one on Blanchard's side? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, okay, I was about to say you might have to edit that in a minute, but uh, no, yes, it, I did hear about it, yeah. We always stayed in a hotel when we were playing Edinburgh. I forget the name of the hotel, but there was a... Do you know one of it's, it was it was out of the centre of Edinburgh, at kind of like a roundabout, and you've got your like KFC, and there was a Krispy Kreme at it, and that was probably about five years ago, and that was the first time I'd ever come across this Krispy Kreme phenomenon, which is exactly what it is. And the are they dr- overrated? Um, like for people to be queuing up in the middle of the night, honking their horns in a drive-through <laughs> for a donut, it does seem a, a bit uh, over the top to me. But maybe they're worth it. Do you know for? They're not handmade, mm. but so for how they make them, they are pretty tasty. You right. know, when you're mass producing something on a machine, of course, it's not going to be as tasty as something that's handmade, and that's what we try and uh, sets us apart up, up in Belfast is being handmade. But uh, it hasn't been long; it has been a long time since I've had a Krispy Kreme. But my memory of them is that they are pretty tasty. You know, we've uh, Tim Hortons has come to Belfast; uh, it is growing. Um, so hopefully not too many mo- more because we don't want to saturate the market. <laughs> the, the irony, of course, is being a professional athlete and looking after your body and also running a donut shop on the side. So can't imagine you indulge too much in uh, what you're actually selling. Uh, a bit, a bit. Um, I think it was more Callum back. If anyone, for anyone who knows what Callum looks like out there, um, it's more his uh, his thing. But um, you know, part of the brand and part of the whole guilt trip thing and was just. Uh, Listen, the healthy eating well is so important and the health crusade that everyone's on at the minute is brilliant. 
and it's very important issue when it comes to our healthcare, etc. But at the same time, we just kind of wanted to step back from that, and they're not. Well, I joke to the guys that they're protein donuts because there's protein in them. It may be only one gram of protein per hundred grams of sugar, but you know, it, it was kind of a. It's kind of us stepping back from this whole um, high protein, low fat. This is just a treat, and that's okay to have every now and again. So that's the way that's the way we try and market it and brand it. It's not you know it's not supposed to be super healthy. It's just to be something that uh, that people enjoy. Is life very different for somebody starting off uh, in Ulster now on that level, say to when you started off, like in terms of looking after yourself, in terms of nutrition, in terms of uh, the the stuff that you're putting into your body? Yeah, and I've noticed even in my career. Um, big changes through what the information we're being given about what to eat. You know, like early in my career, creatine was a big thing. I don't know if it's still like in other sports or people still, um, but it's 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 massively sort of dwindled, I would say. And then uh, there was a stage where. Um, immune function became incredibly important and the idea was that through our nutrition we should be actually trying just to stay, to not become sick. You know, if every player misses two days sick in a season and there's 40 players, there's 80 training days you're missing. So forget about anything else. If you can keep the squad, you know, from the, the common cold and stuff like that. Um, and then now, you know, it's gone back and um, people are worried about their macros and stuff again. So uh, yeah, it's it's, change, it's it's like anything in rugby. It just keeps changing, and people come in and say these things are better. And I, I suppose one thing I will say is yes. I mean the the young guys now um, are picked up so young, and they're sat down at a very young age and told what they eat, and they have far more information. And I suppose that's up, up to them what they choose to do with it. Then yeah, you, you mentioned creating kind of going out of the game a little bit. Is that the supplement culture in general just kind of having been phased out a tiny bit? I'm, I have no idea. It's just something. It's not something that's been discussed. It's not like somebody said, "Don't take this." Uh, I don't know if it's uh, in like um, other sports or in the health and fitness industry. It's just something in rugby that I remember. I think at the time I might have been studying sports science, you know, and it was quite a, you know, ATP and all creatine and all this. Um, so maybe it was more prominent with me. But <clears throat> it's just something that I, I don't hear mentioned as much now, put it that way. I don't know, as I said, if that's a, an Ulster rugby thing or a rugby thing or um, maybe it was just a bit of a, a sort of a fad that worked a bit and people got a little bit carried away with for a few years. Yeah, perhaps. It'll be interesting to see how it develops over the next couple of years as well. <coughs> Uh, we did want to talk about Six Nations, of course, kicks off this weekend. You're here with thanks uh, to Volkswagen Fan TV. Um, England, first up, when we talk about Ireland's midfield, it'd be interesting to get your take on this. There has been some suggestion that uh, Rob Carney may not be in a place to start the first game of the Six Nations. He's often proved us wrong, though, in the past, and that Robbie Henshaw could potentially move to 15. What are your thoughts on that and Ireland's first-choice midfield? I think, I mean, this is part of the reason I enjoy uh, these conversations so much. Well, firstly, it's a bit, Ireland have so many players at the minute that uh, it's an educated guess, isn't it? And Joe, we trust. He's the guy who we know best. I can only give my personal opinion. Um, I would firstly agree with you that, like, Rob Carney has been written off so many times. Um, so I'm not going to write Rob Carney off. I know he hasn't played a lot of rugby since November. I know he's played uh, the last couple of weekends or just last weekend. Um, I personally am a big Guy Ringrose fan. Um, had a good season. Yeah, I just think he's a great player. I think I think he's a good tackler, but even more so positionally, I just think he. he uh, 
it's not that if if Joe went with um, with Bundy and Robbie that it wouldn't work. I just think as a thirteen, like if somebody said to me, uh, like a school kid said to me, you know, I'm a young outside centre, how should I defend? I would say watch Guy Ringrose positionally. Nice. Um, I just think he's very important to Ireland, and he's a player who uh, I just personally admire a lot. So. My personal opinion is that Ireland's best midfield is Henshaw with Ringrose, but um, it's very, very hard to, after the sort of 2018 Bundy Yaki's had, to, to give no mention to him. This was to answer your question. I personally wouldn't consider moving Robbie Henshaw to fullback. I know that Joe mentioned that in. Um, He's mentioned it this season, I think. Yeah, I think Rory O'Connor in the Irish Independent this morning had a line that he's been spotted there in training down in Portugal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's obviously just to plug the gap that Rob Carney not being in the, the warm weather training camp at the moment, that's probably all it is, but it's interesting speculation. Yeah, it is, and um, uh, another player who I think has had a great 20, sort of this season, 2018-19, so uh, far as Conway, we know he's a good fullback as well, Jordan Lommer's obviously played well, it's just, again, I, uh, I don't know what's been happening in Portugal, I haven't been in touch with any of the lads, I can say that I would be surprised to see Robbie Henshaw named at fullback, I think he's one of uh, the best centres in the Northern Hemisphere, and I'm a sort of a little bit of a traditionalist in terms of I think you play where you can your best players in your best positions. I do think, I'm not sure what level Rob's at, I don't think there's such a crisis at fullback that we need to start moving players. As I said, um, Conway's almost been like a forgotten player because of this uh, because of how well Larmer's done. Mm. I mean, every time I've seen Conway play for Munster, he's been brilliant. He played brilliant in the, was it the USA game I was commentating on. Um, so, I mean, he could do a great job in there. Um, Jordan Larmer, I would, I would have no problem with him playing at fullback. Will Addison's another one who could do a job in there, but he hasn't played there for Ulster. Um, equally, it's hard to see him featuring in the midfield just because I do think that Ringrose Henshaw... Uh, and Aki are the three main contributors there, so it's um, it makes for it's really interesting stuff. Uh, but I would be surprised to see Robbie Henshaw named and playing at fullback. Yeah, I think most people will be. There's one thing there that I wanted to just pick you up on. You said if you were instructing any young lad who wanted to play midfield to follow anybody defensively, it's Gary Ringrose. So, yeah. what would that young person learn from watching Gary Ringrose? What does he do that makes him so special defensively? I think um, as a start. For start, uh, his positional play is very good. I think uh, a lot of the time um, he looks not spectacular because he's always in the right place. Um, so he very rarely misses a tackle. I think his like his tackle entry, the angle that he enters, um, he very rarely gets stepped on the inside, and he never gets beaten for pace. So he's not he's not going too f- uh, far across the pitch, and he's not getting too high up the pitch to get burnt for speed. So the angle with which he enters. A tackle that he gets right a lot. Um, his line speed's very good. His ability to sort of be on like a bit of a drift defence. So I think we're in trouble here. But then close at the last minute and put under pressure. I think he makes small decisions like that uh, very well. And he's he's just a, as I said, he's a guy who I would say to a young player, watch what he does. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you mentioned Will Addison here, and I just want to finish up on this point. He was uh, quoted in the Daily Telegraph today. Actually, Daniel Schofield was speaking to him, and he says that uh, when he was playing over in uh, England, I think Joe Schmidt texted him it was from a private number and he didn't believe it was from Joe Schmidt at the time uh, picks up the phone to him and every so often Schmidt would call him and he was playing over there and said to him like in the 69th minute against Bath you did such and such a yeah. thing the attention to detail that Joe Schmidt was paying to him even at a time
time when he wasn't in the Irish system was extraordinary. I presume that doesn't surprise you. No, not at all. Um, and I know that I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I do think a couple of years before Will Allison arrived in Ireland, I do think he had looked at uh, either coming to Ulster or going to another province. So I don't. this wasn't uh, the first time that Joe had been after him. Um, I think it just... I'm not sure what it actually does say, but I think for England, if you look at the guys who have played in the centre for England, say since the 2015 World Cup, um, the likes of uh, Luther Burrell and Sam Burgess and Billy Twelve Trees. I mean, if you went through the clubs, you could name Ollie Devoto, uh, Henry Slade. You could name probably ten or twelve. And I, I do find it very strange that that Will Addison, that Will Addison has come to Irish rugby, just in terms yeah. of. As I say, I'm not sure exactly what it does say about the culture of English rugby, about what English uh, the English rugby team look for in a player. Are they all but, big lads? I mean, they, Will Will is not a massive guy. He's 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 perfect. Um, neither is Gary, but like they're perfect size for playing um, international the, rugby. The English lads you listed off there are quite big. Just uh, yeah. they're all probably bigger than Will Addison. Probably, yeah, off the top of my head, I mean, even 12 trees, even though he's a good, good skills, he's a big lad, and obviously Burrell and, and Burgess. Uh, maybe it is size, maybe they, uh, you know, the amount of players in the Premiership, they just literally wrote Will off. Mm. Um, but I just think it says a lot about English rugby that, you know, a player of his talent, like he's, he's, a, he's a phenomenal player, whether it be centre or fullback, whatever it is, the fact that he never, um, the fact that he felt, you know, I'm going to pursue international rugby country, and another country, sorry, and it, it, it's come as no surprise to me at all that he's played for Ireland. Um, and one thing about him as well, I think he's a very good learner, so I actually think I saw an improvement in him when he came back from November, having worked with Andy Farrell, having worked with Joe Schmidt, and he's a guy who, I mean, it, it's very it's very competitive, but you, you wouldn't be surprised uh, to see Sneak on the plane for the World Cup. Yeah, right, that's really interesting stuff. Is it going to be Grand Slam potential for Ireland this year? Um, it's definitely potential, isn't it? But um, oh, go on, yeah, we're going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a reminder that Volkswagen is proud partner of Irish Rugby, and they're going to be at the Aviva Stadium this Saturday as Ireland take on England in their Six Nations opening game. You can come down to test your rugby skills and win great prizes. You can see Volkswagen Ireland social channels for more information, and Darren Cave is going to be there. Darren, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right, a reminder about our competition this morning. You can uh, enter by just retweeting or sharing our stream on Facebook or indeed on Twitter. Make sure you're following at Off The Ball or at Off The Ball AM, even better. And you can uh, tag whoever you're going to bring and we will announce the winner in 24 hours' time on Thursdays Off The Ball AM. Use the hashtag OTBAM and we'll uh, get all the entries that way as well. And Darren is here with a roundup of a very busy morning of sports news. Yeah, very busy indeed, Chair. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer believes complacency may have cost Manchester United yesterday. The Red Devils snatched two late goals to draw 2-2 with Burnley. Ashley Barnes and Chris Wood netted to give the visitors a 2-0 lead. Paul Pogba pulled one back from the spot three minutes from time before Victor Lindelof scored the equaliser in stoppage time. Solskjaer reckons the players may have become complacent after their eight-game winning streak. Well, the performance wasn't wasn't too bad if you look at it uh, in the end because uh, we had loads of shots, loads of efforts, loads of possession. It was too slow. Uh, I think maybe we started the game uh, almost feeling like the eight previous games uh, meant that we could uh, start the game with a 1-0 lead. But it doesn't happen like this. You need to uh, earn the right to, um, to win the game by having a good start. They made it difficult for us, but then again, we, uh, we had a great comeback. 
Manchester City have suffered a setback in the Premier League's title race. The champions let a 1-0 lead slip away as they lost 2-1 at St James's Park to Newcastle. It means the leaders Liverpool can capitalise and go seven points clear of City with a win over Leicester tonight. Pep Guardiola not giving up though. Well, when you are behind, always you, you cannot lose points. So now I don't know tomorrow is going to happen, but uh, of course. So, but still, we are in January. Today is the last day in January, or there is tomorrow. So we are still in January. We have a lot, lot of games. But when you are behind, you have to push. When you are in front points, you can drop points. But when you are behind, you can do it. You have to avoid it. But most the fact for the points is the fact that uh, today we didn't. We we. We, we could have done better, but it's what it is. Sometimes it happens. It's a lot of games. Sometimes I understand the players mentally, but it's, it's therefore we have to do. Now at the other end of the table, Fulham manager Claudio Ranieri is confident they can claw their way out of the relegation zone. They produced a stunning comeback from two down at halftime to beat Brighton 4-2 at Craven Cottage. The Londoners are five points from safety this morning. Cardiff City remained three points from safety. Neil Warnock said his players put in an excellent performance at Arsenal in their first game since striker Emiliano Sala went missing. His side went down 2-1 at the Emirates. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Alexander Lacazette got the Gunners' goals. Everton are up to 8th in the table after beating Huddersfield 1-0. Ricarlison scored the only goal of the game from a rebound in the third minute after his initial shot was saved. Well, the West Ham manager Manuel Pellegrini is sure they can bounce back from the 3-0 defeat against Wolves. He claims it is impossible to play any worse. 3-0 even flatters the Hammers. Their keeper Lucas Fabianski, probably their best player. It represented the club's third consecutive defeat and followed their shock FA Cup exit to League One's bottom club AFC Wimbledon. On the pitch tonight, Bournemouth take on Chelsea at the Vitality Stadium, 7.45 kickoff. Elsewhere, Southampton welcome Crystal Palace to St Mary's. Liverpool can extend their lead by beating Leicester City at Anfield from 8. Tottenham go head-to-head with Watford at Wembley. That game also begins at 8 o'clock this evening. Moving to rugby and CJ Stander is confident that Sean O'Brien will be able to slot into the Ireland team to face England in the Six Nations. The flanker hasn't played for Ireland since the November international. He broke his arm against Argentina. Then the Tolo Tank, though, made his long-awaited comeback for Leinster off the bench in the Champions Cup pool game against Wasps. O'Brien played 56 minutes and came through that game OK. Stander has been assessing England's threat and he is optimistic that the 31-year-old can show his world-class ability once again if selected. The set piece, I think the set piece is, um, is a big part of him in the game and um, from that, that they've got good threats um, out the back as well. Um, I think you've got good runners, uh, powerful runners. I think set piece and the powerful play there. Yeah, he's one of those players who can uh, put on a scrum cap and uh, just jump straight in into deep end. You know, uh, I think it was great for him to get 55 minutes, but I think, as I just said, as a standard expected from all the players here that if um, if you're selected, um, you're going to give 100% for that jersey, and I think he's um, he's a great man to do that if it happens. Now, England's plans for the Six Nations clash with Ireland have been thrown into some disarray with the news that Ben Teo is injured. Manu Tuolagi set to make his first competitive start since 2014 in the Six Nations. The former Leinster man suffered what they're calling a side strain in training on Monday. Tuolagi, whose own career has been hampered by injury, is now set to spearhead England's midfield for what would be his first international start for over five years. Owen Farrell had a full training session yesterday and he has shown no ill effects after a minor hand operation last week. 
The GAA president, John Horan, has defended the decision to increase ticket prices in an address to Shannon Aaron. Fans and pundits have been critical at the increase in prices for tickets to Allianz League games and the All-Ireland Finals. One senator noted that tickets are now more than 33% higher in expense than they were at the height of the Celtic Tiger, but Dublin native Horan said the attendance has marginally increased for the opening round of league games in comparison with 2018, an increase of around 1,000 extra spectators going through the turnstiles around the country. He also claimed that the GAA sold over 3,000 more season tickets compared to this time last year. Now, the Mayo ladies football manager Peter Leahy says he was the victim of outrageous treatment by the Ladies Gaelic Football Association. Leahy made headlines in the summer after 12 players quit his panel at Contingent from Carnacon cited player welfare issues as the reason they walked away. Leahy has told the Irish Independent he had the backing of his colleagues and claims he was privately contacted by almost every other inter-county manager to congratulate him for what he calls toughing it out. The mayor manager was critical of the LGFA claiming they shot themselves in the foot by allowing his name to be dragged through the mud. He believes it sends a worrying message to other men involved in the ladies game. He's quoted as saying in an interview with Michael Verney there was a huge opportunity for the LGFA to come out and say we are not going to allow players to slander people without facts I never got one phone call from the LGFA which I think is absolutely outrageous I never got one bit of support so that it's saying to me and all the other male managers is you're not female so we don't care about you but still they need males to be involved in the organisation now Leahy said he gave his version of events that led to the fallout to the Mayo LGFA in an interview he claims it was the same account given by a group of players who raised their concerns to the county board he's quoted as saying the only difference from what I told the county board and what the players told them was emotion. They were crying telling them. They told them exactly what happened, but they were crying telling them. If we start bringing emotions into Gaelic football, we might as well all pack it in. The France have been in their team for the uh, Six Nations opener against Wales this weekend. And uh, Maxime Medar starts at fullback. It's Morgan Parra and Camille Lopez at 9 and 10. So you're like, oh yeah, okay, I've seen all this before. And I've also seen this name, Antimac, before playing for France, but not in a while. Emil Antimac's son is the youngest member of any Six Nations squad, and he has been named to start in the centre alongside Wesley Fofana, Uge and Peno make up um, the team on the wings. So that is a um, pretty interesting team. One of those teams that's just going to gel together beautifully in time for Ireland. Yeah, uh, so the French are on the chopping block and it looks like the, um, the two lads at Racing are already kind of being lined up. Do you know, they're interesting tectonic plates that would move in the world of coaching. Right? As in, you know, Rog? Exactly. Like, I just wanted to be clear there. That'd be, that'd be an interesting sudden opening. So, I mean... France doing badly would be good in the long run for Irish rugby. Yeah. And uh, Irish rugby, and immediately. France, a bad France is good for the Six Nations from our perspective. Short-term, short-term gain right there, and then the backlash in, uh, in Japan against the French. In the quarterfinals? Yeah. Like, every kind of negative performance from an opposition at the moment it has to be construed as potential black backlash in the World Cup. We have to be some bit Irish and be some bit negative about things. Fair enough. All right. Let's move on. So, Board Bia have partnered with Donica Ryan and Annalise Murphy to launch their Chicken Make It Your Way campaign, calling on everybody to spread their wings and experiment with new recipes and flavours with chicken. What's your favourite chicken? What, what chicken dish is your go-to chicken dish? Chicken, um, chicken stir-fry. Yeah. What are you putting in it? The usual stir-fry mix that comes from the butchers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not the vegetable shop? No, no, the butchers. <laughs> okay. The pre-made ones. Owen, do you, are you about to reveal what your favourite chicken dish is? Yeah, my chicken sandwich from McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> That's worse than my Come stir-fry. on! 
Well, it is. It is uh, chicken fillet roll is good. <laughs> no, but like chicken I, curry. I'm uh, yeah. I'm I'm, par- I'm partial to a, to a good old stir. You should look one. it up and start cooking. No, I do. I, I cook plenty. Oh yeah, yeah. What, what chicken do you cook? I, I'd be a, a stir fry man as well. More of a sweet and sour variety guy, though. Chicken curry is really easy. Yeah, I'm not a spice guy, and mild chicken curry just isn't as nice as spicy chicken curry. So you're there, and the, the, the mouth is on fire, and you're like, this is really delicious, but I just can't handle it. All right. waiting for us to ask him, though. No, no, no I'm not at all. I'm not at all. No, 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 no. Can't go to this Don't let it dip until we get yours. What's your chicken dish? Always look for that. favorite chicken dish? Yeah. So you you roast the chicken on the Sunday, have it Sunday, Monday, and then make a chicken curry Wednesday, Thursday. It's like amazing. A full week. How big is that chicken? Big enough to feed a family five, five, four times. Small family or a big chicken? You don't actually need that much for your chicken curry when you add in like those vegetables, sweet potato. It's good. That sounds amazing. But chicken wings for Super Bowl. The only time of the year chicken wings are acceptable. Super Bowl night. What do you mean the only time all, of the year? All gone in the first quarter. They're acceptable it's, all year round. That's before hours. They're more overrated than donuts. Chicken wings. Well, they are unless you, unless you actually find a good way to do it. I'll give you my I'll give you my secret recipe later. Uh, you can always look for the board beer quality mark when purchasing chicken so that you know that it has been produced to the highest board beer quality standards and check out boardbeer.ie forward slash quality chicken for recipe inspiration here's how Owen got on with Annalise okay so Annalise Murphy joins us in studio now Annalise how are things? great thank you yeah you're very welcome back home I think it's due to say you were in Portugal recently I know I've been uh you know, living it tough down in Portugal. <laughs> um, kind of based ourselves down down there for the winter, just you know, sort of December to February. It's pretty cold. You can't really get proper training done here. So it's been based down there, but it was pretty easy. I, I was sailing yesterday morning from like 9 till 12 on a flight at 2 o'clock. And I was back in the gym here at six. So right, okay. So it's uh, like it's pretty easy. It's nearly like <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you say we're down there, who's who does that entail? Um, so I'm sailing the this two person boat now, the 49er FX. So I'm down there with my crew, Katie, and then our coach Ian. So the three of us just training away. It's good. Yeah, we, we were chatting about some of the videos uh, before we clicked record here, and uh, you were saying that you kind of like to put up videos that are funnier rather than you doing actually good stuff in the boat. Yeah, like nobody wants to see like the you know the boring stuff where you're getting things right. They just want to see when you like nearly nearly sort of kill yourself for like <laughs> swinging around the front of the boat or falling out of the side. So uh, I'm kind of trying to like sort of show. Although maybe I actually have quite a few crashes in the boat, but it's uh, they're kind of the funny ones. Because I often wonder, like, say if uh, the Six Nations team, for example, this week posted a video of them training, they'd be killed because there'd be tactical information leaking out. Is that possible when you're in the boat that somebody actually might spot something that may be uh, at a disadvantage to you because they know that information? Yeah, definitely. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to give away your what your techniques are, or how you're doing things. We used to be pretty when I was saying the laser, pretty secretive about, you know, not letting anyone else sort of see video and things like that, but. Mm. You don't want to put out. You don't want to put out something that then people can replicate if it's good. You know, you want sure. to try and at least until the Olympics server, you want to keep it uh, keep it secret. We were, uh, but I was actually the English rugby team were training uh, next to where I was staying in Portugal. There, right? And we were just cycling along, and we were like, there's a rugby team there, and 
then we discovered it was the English rugby team and then we're there like at the fence with our phones we're trying to film it we're like oh look they're doing line out practice let's try and like steal some footage and send it to someone on the Irish team and did you get it? Huh? Oh, I don't know if it's very good we did get some footage but well, there uh, we go Joe, if Joe Schmidt is watching you need yeah. to send that to him straight away and, yeah uh, got uh, tactical inside information <laughs> that, that's, that's very interesting we did see some videos at least from uh, the English training camp and they've been posted on Instagram and stuff like that but it sounds that if you, if you got the line out you've actually got top class confidential information there um, like you, you mentioned there that you didn't want to give away anything when you were doing uh, the laser like obviously our, we, we get into it in a moment whether or not you might return to that one day can you tell us now what sort of stuff you didn't want uh, your competitors to find out before previous Olympic Games for example when you were doing the laser yeah mainly um, so there's in sailing there's, you go upwind which is when you're going into the wind and that's more just hard work and not so much technique, but downwind, where you're surfing waves with the wind directly behind you, that's where there's a lot of technique involved and just didn't really want any of my competitors. I was probably one of the best people downwind in the fleet, and I, mm. which was something I worked on really hard between London and Rio so that I wouldn't mess it all up again. And uh, that is something that you didn't really want your competitors to be able to study and copy what I was doing. So... We were, yeah, pretty. We tried to be secretive. Like, obviously, you know, there's uh, they can watch races uh, online, or you know, some coaches would be there filming, you know, sneakily filming. Uh, the sort of Chinese team would be quite good at coming out, and right. you know, there wouldn't be any of the Chinese sailors out, but they'd be there with video cameras, and like, the other coaches used to get pretty annoyed. They'd be like, "Get off the course, stop filming." Right. But it's, uh, yeah, kind of, you know, a bit of. Like low level espionage, I guess. Well, it's it's a theme in sport at the moment, isn't it? With the Leeds United and their manager getting uh, getting caught spying, and the Leeds United camp spying on the Derby County team. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you've uh, experienced espionage as well. That so is it, is it mostly the, the Chinese team who who spy on you? Um, that was just one one sort of one situation, but I guess you're always trying to find out what your competitors are up to, and you know sometimes sometimes you want them to know, or like I always think that people are over either sort of exaggerating how much training they're doing or doing the opposite like you know pretending that they're not doing any training it's generally the people that are like oh yeah I'm not really training that much they're the ones that are actually training really hard but the ones that are going oh I'm training 10 hours a day and then doing this you're like they're not training (laughs) 10 hours a day like you need to sleep. <laughs> Sounds like a lecture hall before the leaving cert. Um, so is there any particular people, are they in the Irish camp, the people who try to let on they're doing a little bit more or a little bit less than they really are? Um, ah, it depends. I Sometimes I'd probably be one to sometimes let on that I'm doing less than I actually am. Right, okay. It depends. Other than sometimes when I actually am doing a lot of training, complain about how much training <laughs> I'm doing. I'm so tired. <laughs> uh, I do I want to chat to you about uh, the change, as I said there, uh, from Laser Radio, because uh, chances are that when it comes to Tokyo, and I know it's a big year when it comes to qualification, mm-hmm. it's going to be the 49er FX. So uh, to us, explain to us what the 49er FX is and the difference between that and the Laser Radio. It's... Um it's so, first of all, it's a two-person boat, so I'm sailing with, uh, I've got a teammate, Katie, which is great, like, you know, that you're not, that I'm not on my own anymore, that I have someone else to help motivate me to go training is brilliant. Um, it's much faster than the laser, and it's much more difficult to sail than the laser. The laser is very difficult to sail it very well, but you could also put a complete beginner out in a laser and they'd be completely fine. Okay. Well... I my first day out in the 49er I couldn't stand up I kept on falling over and capsizing it's a very difficult boat to sail and there's not many people that are able to sail it very well so basically for the last seven months been sailing 
nearly every day to try and uh, kind of up my skill level in the boat. I'm kind of at a stage now where I go, okay, I'm actually able to sail the boat now. I didn't think it was going to take this long, <laughs> but uh, that's uh, that's kind of been it's been a big challenge. But it's also been really fun, like learning every day because in the laser, I wasn't a lot of the time. I was actually trying to get you know get back to something that I'd been very good at, but I'd you know forgotten how to do because I'd then been working on something else. Sure. And a lot of the time, the laser, I was actually just working on my sort of mental game rather than the actual, you know, I was very good at sailing the boat technically, but I like mentally was let down a lot by just, you know, getting nervous before competitions or, you know, just basically messing it all up. Um, so that was like my, sort of my big focus. Well, at the moment in the 49er, it's just about learning to sail the boat really well and be really good technically in the boat. And then hopefully all of my sort of laser sailing tactics and strategy I can use uh, to good effect once I've uh, mastered racing the boat. That's really interesting. There's a lot there. Uh, why did he change? Um, I was kind of... A little bit burnt out and tired and I found it hard sailing by myself all the time. Like there was so much, you know, it was just me by myself and if I messed up at the end of the day, it was my fault and, you know, like I'd go training by myself the entire time and I was just, I'd sailed the boat for 10 years and I'd kind of achieved my sort of my lifelong dream that, you know, something that I, ne like I never thought I'd win an Olympic medal. I dreamt about winning an Olympic medal, but I never thought it would actually happen for me. And I was like, well, it's not going to happen to me. Like, I'm just, you know, I'm just at least sailing a laser. And then, you know, when I actually did manage to make it happen, I was sort of satisfied. I was like, oh, I've done it. Now what? And then I was like, I need a new challenge, something that's going to, you know, push me again to like, you know, all the things that I had to overcome to win a medal in the laser that I managed to do on to try and now overcome loads of hurdles again in this boat. But yeah, it's a big challenge. <laughs> yeah, it definitely seems that way. And uh, it seems that it's a whole new mental aspect as well, having somebody there beside you, because it's great to have a teammate sometimes to rely on and will help you out. But there's also downsides to that as well. There's somebody else to blame. And sometimes athletes prefer to have themselves to blame and be in control of yeah. everything. Uh, how are you finding that? Yeah, it was it's something that I'm learning a lot about myself. I didn't realize that I'm actually quite selfish and very controlling. And I didn't realize this because I was always by myself. <laughs> and now I've got you know, someone else you know, in my team that's you know, an equal part of the team as I am. And I have to realize that you know, I can't just do everything myself. And even if I can do everything myself, it's still, I still have to ask Katie, you know, would you help me with this? You know, because then she feels like she's included in the process. Well, before it wouldn't even occur to me. I'm like, well, I'll just do it because I can. And uh it's um, so those kinds of things and yeah, realising you know there's other people in the world apart from yourself which is when you're in kind of you know, high level individual sport it does everything does come about become about you a bit mm, and it uh, and you know but then I realised I'm like oh am I a really horrible person actually because <laughs> <laughs> I just like you know without realising it I'd always kind of bring the conversation back to myself and my training rather than what other people are up to and it's like yeah sort of well I've since started sailing with Katie I've realized actually there are other people in the world and there's you know there's you know other people to be worried about and uh, so 
like I'm really enjoying it. Like it's, but it is a, it's a big challenge, you know. So you started to think more about other people than at any other point, really, in in your uh, sailing career. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. That's uh, that like obviously the to be uh, as successful as you have been, you have to have that level of selfishness. I don't yeah. think anybody can be. But I'd suspect if you asked many people in team sports how selfish they are, I'd say they, they would say they're pretty selfish as well because you've got to look after yourself, you've got to focus on your own goals and ultimately working with a teammate is yeah. making yourself successful as well. So I guess you kind of need that still, that yeah. selfishness. Uh, I've probably just moved like one level up. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm now like... <laughs> gone from being just like completely selfish to a tiny bit less <laughs> um, the, the other thing I wanted to, to ask you about uh, when one of the first things you mentioned there was the idea of nerves with regards to uh, the laser radial because it seems to me that uh, from your perspective it's, it's a rather simple technical race from the, the expertise you've built up whereas this your mental space is in a very different position and I guess it, there's kind of a, a psychoanalysis to be done here but do you feel that you'll be able to perform better at an elite level say if you, you, you got to Tokyo because you're thinking about what you're actually doing rather than thinking about how you can actually mess up. Is that is that something that, that may arrive and actually help you in the long run? I'm hoping that I'll just... Well, first of all, because I'm, I'm having so much fun sailing the boat, it's really fun to sail. The laser isn't that much fun to sail. So I'm hoping that alone, you know, just the enjoyment that you get out of racing it. And that's what a lot of competitors will be saying in the 40. They're not, they say, even a bad day in a 49er is still a fun day sailing. Sure. Well, a bad day in a laser was not a fun day sailing. <laughs> um, but I'm kind of hoping by the time we get around to Tokyo that we'll be in such a good place you know, technically in the boat that it will actually be just about you know, the strategy, racing the boat well, and also you know, sort of having two brains is better than one that... It won't, all the decisions won't just be on me. It'll be Katie will be able to help me make those decisions on the race course. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It's it's probably still going to be, you know, when we get to that point, it's like there's going to be pressure and stress. But uh, but it wouldn't be the, the Olympics or high performance without it, would it? And um, yeah. I guess th- that's that's what I wanted to ask you as well. How, how are we looking from an Irish fleet perspective in terms of qualification for Tokyo? I know, obviously, we had Arhus last year, which, from what I could gather, was good for the development of the future of Irish sailing rather than actually nailing down Olympic spots. Yeah, we haven't actually, we haven't qualified any, any anyone yet for the Olympics in sailing, which is in we we've always done quite well at qualifying people in our in the first round of qualification in sailing. So there's sort of a big step up for some of the younger athletes coming through to, you know, get that qualification standard and well for Katie and myself in the 49er to qualify and but it is exciting as well because it's a really young generation of athletes. Like, you know, when I was in London, they were only kids and mm. now they're coming through and they're trying to get to the Olympics. So, you know, hopefully they're all going to qualify and then, you know, get to Tokyo, get, you know, really good Olympic experience and then be by 2024 be medal contenders. That would be kind of you know, sort of that, that that would be the dream for Irish sailing, I think. Anyway. Sure. And when do you know yourself whether or not Tokyo's definitely going to happen? Well, the I have to try and qualify in New Zealand in December. December, right. And that's um, hopefully we'll nail down qual- qualification there and then we can just focus on Tokyo. But if for some reason we didn't, we'd have another opportunity in April 2020 to qualify. That'd be a bit stressful because there's not much time between then and the Olympics. But we're just hoping everything will, you know, Smooth sailing, <laughs> uh, you know, through through qualification and get that done, and then, you know, sort of look at you know what we have to do to be at the best uh, sort of shape in Tokyo.
Good stuff. Well, best luck for the year ahead. It sounds like it's exciting times and challenging times. Uh, Annelise Murphy, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so Annelise Murphy um, talking with... Uh, did you talk chicken with her? No, we didn't. Just chicken. Uh, we also spoke to Donica Ryan about the Spread Your Wings campaign and uh, we'll be bringing you his chicken habits later in the week, so uh, I'm sure people are excited about that. All right, here's, uh, moving on to Rob. We're going to talk about uh, Robbie Henshaw in a minute. Here's Joey Carby talking about whether he's talked to Johnny Sexton about their Thoman Park altercation. No, I don't think so. I think every game is uh, pretty at that level. With with that much on the line, it's going to be uh, going to be pretty heated. Um, so no, nothing's been said, and there's no need to be. Do you think that um, since you moved to Munster and now that you are more of a competitor for Johnny for that position, do you think the relationship between you and Johnny has changed much? No, I don't think so at all. <clears throat> I think. Um, Everyone in this group uh, is trying to <clears throat> make Ireland better, and if that makes the players better, which I think competition does, then that's a winning environment. So the, be- the more we make each other, push each other, and uh, that will benefit each other, and then obviously benefit Ireland. So nothing's changed. I think the more competition that's there, the better uh, for both of us. It makes us a top of our game. Is he still willing to maybe share a few pointers with you now? Is- yeah, definitely. Like, I don't think anyone hides anything really in the camp. As I said, like, it's purely Ireland-based. Everyone's focusing on the team. That was interesting. What do you think that dynamic is like? What I think what is like? That dynamic. Because it, it has to change, right? Well, he, he did grab him by the scruff of the neck and slam him on the ground and then shout something in his face. I didn't slam him on the ground. Just grab him. Just grab him out. Just drag him out of the fight. Just stay out of it. Drag him and pull him to the ground. Stay out of it. Like he, he, there was kind of like a pulling motion. To the fraternal. It was, it was a heated moment, a very heated moment. If I'd been there when you were in that scrap in Tralee with whoever gave you that face, I would have just dragged you out and said, come on, get out of it. That's how it would have been. But then would you have screamed at me when I was on the ground? I mean, that's what Johnny get said. out of it! That's it, like, you don't be getting involved in fights, that's what they want. It's kind of patronising, isn't it? No. See, look at that, does that look friendly to you? Yeah, it's like, uh, come on. Come on, we're in it together here. <laughs> uh, I was watching um, the America's Game where the Patriots win their first Super Bowl where Tom Brady takes over from Drew, Bredslo- Drew Bledslow and uh, it's Bledslow's team, right? So he's the franchise quarterback. He signed a 10-year contract that off-season and this kid comes in and is like, he's grand for a while and then gets quite good and then Belichick names him the starter. He, he perforated lung... Uh, massive internal bleeding, lost loads of blood was the injury that Bledsoe suffered. And there's this old bullshit in the, the NFL. It's like, oh, you can't, if you're the quarterback, you can't lose your position because of injury. But it happens all the time. It's like this kind of nonsense truism that they have. But when it's announced, Bledsoe, you know, there's the normal, yeah, I'll just, you know, I'm going to show up and do my team. It's like, uh, I'm really looking forward to getting back to compete for my job, was how he phrased it. The first day he got told he was dropped. Are you angry, upset? Next question it was like, oh, you know, what can you do now? It's like, I'm really looking forward to getting back to competing for my job was out. Uh, what, if, what, if, what if, you know? Well, is, was Drew Bledsoe the best player in the NFL? Because Johnny Sexton is the best rugby player in the world. Yeah, he is. But what if, um, what if Joey Carver is the best ever? Well, there is that. All Johnny Sexton has won so far is 2018. She's won nothing yet, as, as he'd probably say. She's only the best player in the world for one year. Not for, not for all time. No, that was for last year. For last year as well. Yeah. You know, new year, new game. Yeah. New, new Joey Carberry. New rules. New Joey Carberry is 2019 uh, has been unbelievable. He's been the best Champions Cup player in the year 2019. I know we've only had two rounds, but 
uh, he's been outstanding. So yeah, new, new year, new rules. I did. I thought that was just really interesting to see that dynamic. It, uh, Brady obviously is doing this a couple of years later, so he's like, oh, we were we were really good friends, and he helped me out. And there are bits where eventually Bledsoe calms down a bit, and then Bledsoe gets his moment in the um, the uh, AFC Championship game where he has to come in. Brady gets injured, and then Brady's fine for the uh, Super Bowl. So um, Bledsoe gets his moment back, and then they trade him to the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the, what's the rugby equivalent of getting traded to the Buffalo Bills? Treviso. Treviso. <laughs> it's like, you're going to, or maybe Romania. I don't know. It's like if there's a professional team, yeah, NSA STM in Siberia is yeah. the Buffalo Bills exactly. of, of rugby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like that's obviously never going to happen. The opportunity will be afforded to Joey Carberry though. At some point, you suspect over the next five Test matches. The thing is, is it going to be Italy? Or is it going to be Italy and France? Or is it going to be Italy and Scotland, maybe? I think, I think the first two rounds, Sexton starts. And it depends where we're at at that point. It is a strange thing to do, though, if you win your first two games and you're in pole position to actually say, we're going to change it up now. It would be an admission from Joe Schmidt that this is for a rotation policy. To be fair, if Joey Carberry starts ahead of Johnny Texas in any game, I don't think anybody would actually make an argument that the, the pecking order might have changed. It no, will always be for rotation. It, has, it hasn't changed, but... Uh, I mean, certainly it would be... It'd be interesting to see what would happen if Carberry starts a big game. As in, in terms of... Just the dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it, it is a hugely different dynamic to starting for Munster, obviously. So, yeah, and let's move on, because the, the, the other big thing that we talked about yesterday in the show, Alan Quinnan was in, Roy O'Connor had mentioned in his piece, just a line that Henshaw had started in the training matches at fullback and that he was being looked at there. And then today, the Irish Times have it, that uh, he might start at fullback for Ireland this weekend. And it makes a lot of sense. It makes a huge heap of sense that you have this real core of strength at the moment in your centres. It feels like Gary Ringrose has the 13 position nailed down. And so then it's effectively three into one, but it's not really three into one because it doesn't look like he thinks of Chris Farrell just yet as a 12. So it's really two into one. And are you going to drop Robbie Henshaw? You can't. But you can't put Robbie Henshaw, you can't put Bundyaki on the bench because he doesn't cover any other positions. So, good point. Then you've got to put Robbie Henshaw on the bench, and you're not like he loves Robbie Henshaw. He absolutely loves Robbie Henshaw. The thing is, he's dropping Bundyaki though, isn't he? No. If you, but no, as in, if somebody Bundyaki was the last person to play uh, in, in Ireland's last game, George Smith's last game, Bundyaki has the jersey to use that phrase. So it's Robbie Henshaw who has to have played himself back into the team. Yeah. And he hasn't played that much for Leinster. And I know I was saying last week that there's no question that it has to be Henshaw and Ringrose if you're picking your two best midfielders. But certainly, kind of reading different opinions and listening to different opinions over the last week, my view has changed on that a lot more. And say if Rob, if Rob Kearney was the best player in the world right now and had 15 jersey nailed down, I would be a lot less sure of my opinion last week that uh, Robbie Henshaw is definitely going to start over Bundyaki. In fact, I think it's a very, very close call. But is Robbie Henshaw at the moment in a better place than Rob Kearney? I think potentially there is an argument to be made there. And you want to get your best players on the pitch at all times. And like we haven't seen Robbie Henshaw actually play here in an Irish jersey before. He played in a Pro 14 game for Leinster in October, which I wasn't watching, but uh, he, he's obviously got experience there. The thing is, though, like Rob Kearney over the last 12 months in an Ireland jersey has been sublime. Do we automatically forget that? No, I, no. and so I don't, think God, I, I don't think that's what's happening. I think that Kearney's fitness isn't just right, and he's looking at the makeup of the 31 in the World Cup squad. Can he bring those four centres... And Will Allison. Is that what's happening? Well, the thing is... It, it, or does he need Allison and Conway? So this decision gives him 
flexibility and puts pressure on Addison and Conway. If you're going to try Robbie Henshaw out of fullback at any point, you've probably got to do it this weekend because Rob Carney isn't back to his best. Uh, in terms of actually him nailing down the 15 jersey, if Rob Carney is fit going into the World Cup, I think that's a big ask, isn't it? I don't think that. I, I think exactly. I think that's at that point, Rob Carney, say Rob Carney plays himself back into fitness and form, right? And probably will do over the course of the Six Nations, judging from everything we know. Then I would still say that Carney is his first choice fullback. But now he has somebody who he really trusts and really rates, and has the opportunity to get on the field. Or he has he can put Robbie Hench on the bench and say, "Look, at the moment Bundy's my twelve, or Chris Farrell is my twelve, but you are my cover for every other position that I have in the backline." And it's like when you come on our team is going to get even better. Yeah, it's true. The thing is, on, uh, taking this weekend on uh, its own merits, what do you then do? Do you play Rob Kearney on the bench? No. So Kearney... Kearney we're, we're assuming Kearney's going to be out of the matchday squad. Yeah. Let, let's because ass- of versatility. Let's assume that the selection that is mooted in the Times is correct and uh, 15 is going to be Robbie Henshaw. Then, it's, then the rest of the team picks itself. It's Stockdale and Earls yeah. and it's Bundy and... Uh, ring rows and 9 and 10 is exactly yeah. what you would expect it to be um, so at that point who's your 23 at that point um, it's Conway Larmer or Addison it's Cooney who else it's Cooney Carberry and is it Chris Farrell you see Carberry now gives you a bit of option as well so we're we're looking at uh, Chris Farrell or Addison but you want Chris Farrell because what if what if those big ball carriers are starting to do stuff to you? So Carberry, mean, Carberry also can play fullback, has done. Can play centre, has done. So now you've got flexibility. Yeah, so John Cooney's got one of the bench positions. So we've only got two more bench positions in the backs. Carberry has the other. Carberry has the other. And the last one, that gives you the freedom to pick Chris Farrell. So it's, that, like, it's incredible that it's going to be a shoot-up between Chris Farrell, Larimer, Conway, Rob Carney. Addison. Addison. That's one hell of a battle for the 23 shirt. The biggest battle I can ever remember for that. Yeah, normally it's like... Well, leftovers. Let's really hope we don't have to uh, go to the, the back of the bench. It's incredible. It's insane levels of depth. Like, there's no way... No, there's no way you can really kind of risk anything else. So like, the whatever, 16 to 20 is obviously going to be all people in those specialist positions. So, three jerseys and uh, Clooney and Carberry seem to have two of them. Yeah. I, you know what, what I don't have a clue about is the, the step up from playing in a top 14 game to the Six Nations against England I mean it's obviously massive but what is that step up for Robbie Henshaw is it just like well it's just doing my job I just do my job and I know what that job is because I've studied it for so long is it actually really easy for them or is it incredibly difficult? Yeah, and the other thing as well is uh, back three and this is probably just a, a small point a back three from three different provinces so you've got Stockdale Earls, and that's always the way it's been. But it's kind of hammered down by the fact that these guys really haven't played with each other before in a back three. Now, Kearney was different because Kearney, Stockdale and Earls built that up over, over the weeks and mm-hmm. months, over the last 12 months or so. But it's kind of hammered down by the fact that Henshaw is now the central hub between Earls and Stockdale. I don't think that makes too much of a difference, to be quite honest, but maybe just another one to note. Yeah, OK. What do you want to see? What do I want to see? Yeah. I, from an excitement point of view in terms of uh, intrigue, I want to see Robbie Henshaw fullback. I think if... Rob Carney is 80% fit. I think that's a big if. I, I think you start Rob Carney. It's England. Like, we, like the, the idea that we can actually ha- have the luxury of rotating voluntarily, 
I don't think is a smart idea, and Joe Schmidt is not thinking that way. It just makes sense if, if Rob Carney isn't close to full fitness that we come up with a different idea. And I think that that should be taken then as an opportunity to try Robbie Henshaw there because he's an outstanding rugby player, not because he might be outstanding in this position. I've got a very good feeling that he would do very, very well. The thing is, what we do know is that Rob Carney has played at fullback all his life and is bloody brilliant. So if he's close to full fitness, you've got to start Rob Carney. Yeah, and I'd say that's what the case will be when it comes to the big matches in the World Cup, right? Probably come to Murrayfield as well. You know, I, I just think maybe it's a, bit, it's a week too soon. Yeah, so you think he will start Henshaw now that you've seen this? Yeah, my, my, my thought, what I want to see is different to what I think we'll see. What I think we'll see is uh, Henshaw 15, Aki and Ringrose in midfield, and then the rest of the back line picks itself as we've established. Josh van der Fleer as well at, at seven is kind of the, is the other big question mark around the team. So Jordan Armour's not getting near your team at the moment? Not in the team at the moment. It's, it's, it's so weird, isn't it? It's been true, no fault of his own. He's kind of, he's got himself into more of a battle to get into the Ireland squad that we, want, we all wanted to see him make the 23 last year, whereas now, like, I'm a big Will Addison fan, obviously a big Andrew Conway fan as well, but I'm looking at Addison at the 23 jersey, and I'm like, I'd like to look at him there. All right, let's move on to uh, the Women's Six Nations. Uh, Will O'Callaghan yesterday spoke with Ireland's Aoife McDermott, ahead of the Six Nations. Their game kicks off on Friday evening to hear about uh, her own journey. Have a listen. Yeah, yeah, I'm um, pretty quick rise and it's, it's been going really well, thankfully. Um, yeah, I remember last year coming in and every day you were so nervous and, and just trying not to do anything wrong, whereas this year I'm, I feel like I'm much more relaxed and much more sure of what I need to be doing and what my role is on the team um, and just enjoying it even, even that bit more as, as a result of that. Does that extra bit of responsibility help your game as well? Because in the November internationals you were there calling line-outs, which I'm sure six months before you might have been a bit cheapish to do. Absolutely, I would, I would have dreaded the thought six months before that, whereas I really enjoyed it in November and I'm, I'm very excited about doing it again um, and having that, that responsibility on Friday night. Um, yeah, I do enjoy it. it. It comes with a lot of extra work and a lot of extra video work and, and prep and stuff like that and um, ensuring that the girls uh, know their roles, which, they, which they're very good and always do. But um, no, really enjoying it and, and, and really enjoying the, the leadership role, yeah. When it comes to transferable skills, were there some of the basketball skills that actually helped you out in rugby or was it a big adjustment? No, definitely tr- skills are very transferable. Um, footwork, going into contact, um, basketball's all about footwork. Um, your handling, um, I was able to kind of grasp the, the idea of passing the oval ball a bit, a bit easier. And then um, in terms of like line-outs, uh, an, an inbounds play in basketball is all like a, a, set, a set play where it's diversions and, and dummies and, and things like that, which is essentially similar to a line-out. So definitely loads of the skills in basketball were very transferable. Yeah, so hopefully Ireland can uh, kick off their Six Nations campaign with a win on Friday evening as well. We'll keep you up to date with that across all of our platforms on offtheball.com. And a reminder, of course, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel to get all our good stuff, youtube.com forward slash offtheball. So anytime we go live, if you turn your notifications on, we'll give you a little ping and you can just click, oh, oh, I really watched that. Thanks very much. And uh, there you go. Some uh, top quality free sports content coming your direction. Now, all this week on Off The Ball, we're working with the Irish Blood Transfusion Service to remind people just how important blood donations are. When you give blood, you really do help another person who's struggling with ill health or who's had a serious accident. Uh, IBTS, the Irish Blood Transfusion Service, needs 3,000 units of blood donated every single week to keep up with demand. So it's obviously very important to give blood as every drop from every donation matters. Friend of the show and Newstalk presenter Tom Dunn obviously had a very serious um, health scare recently. During that time, he found out firsthand that Ireland needs more blood donors. So he's calling on anyone who can give blood to give blood. He joined us on uh, Off The Ball last night um, to have a conversation with Joe. Have a listen to this. Even going in for this, I knew I was going in to have aortic replacement surgery, which is pretty big. 
Um, but in the, in the preamble, they said you won't be getting a blood transfusion. We kind of pride ourselves on that uh, because there are certain risks involved. Um, with blood transfusions, and you know, the, the, as, you, as you, when we talk about the, the limited number of people who can give blood, there's lots of, of um, potential risks. Mm. So they're saying you won't be getting blood. But then when I came to um, a week later, I've, they told me I'd had four pints. So I'm not sure exactly what went on during the surgery, but mm. obviously something that wasn't quite expected. <laughs> um, so they wanted to tell me that because they were saying the night that I had the four pints of blood, the national supply was down to one day, with one day's supply of blood in the country. So they operate on a very fine margin. Do we ever get to points where there's shortage? I kind of don't want to know no supply. anymore. I, I doubt it. I think one day might have been as low as it's ever been. Um, and the person who was telling me this was saying that it's a very small percentage of the population who can actually give blood. There are lots of things that will disqualify you from giving blood. One of them is having lived and worked in England. And there's an awful lot of Irish people who've lived and worked in England. Mm. So it's kind of more important uh, that those who can give blood do so. Uh, I heard a very small percentage. I heard 3% which I can't believe. I, I'm wondering, was it the morphine? Did I not hear things correctly? I, and I could be wrong. I'm suddenly feeling very guilty because I, I don't know if I can give blood or not. Yeah. And I just assume, well, we're fine. There's bound to be enough people out there doing yeah. it. Yeah, I thought that as well. But I must say, the one day shocked me. It really yeah, did. That's- yeah, you can see the rest of that interview on all of our social channels or at offtheball.com. A remarkable story and uh, hopefully prodding some of you out there to... Uh, look in to see if you are an eligible blood donor. You can head along to the Irish Blood Transfusion Service. You can check out their website as well, and uh, we'll be following that up in the days and weeks to come. Now, tonight's on Off the Ball, it's uh, Wednesday Night Rugby, the football show, obviously. The Wednesday Night Rugby before the kick-off of the Six Nations is always like, ooh, this is all getting very real now, start of the Six Nations. A tournament we expect to win. How cocky are we? Is it expectancy or just kind of being able to see the future? Us holding, uh, We'll be holding two trophies at the end of this. That could be it. Would be championship entry. Oh, we get a we get a millennium trophy when we beat England in Dublin. Oh, there is that. I forgot about all those and the the one. Uh, yeah, the, 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 there's other stuff as well for other mini kind of tournaments within the tournaments. But yeah, like when it comes to the end of it, we will be champions. We will. Oh, sorry, no. Well, I'm thinking that we probably won't have a Grand Slam, but that means we also lose a triple crown because I expect us to not do the business in Cardiff. That we'll get our hopes up enough to, to claim the championship. Uh, and then everything else will fall through. So don't worry, basically, is what I'm trying to say. All right. Tonight, as I said, uh, Wednesday Night Rugby, that's coming your way from uh, 8 o'clock on the radio and a little bit earlier on all of our social channels. Tomorrow morning on OTBM, we're going to talk Liverpool, obviously. We'll look ahead to the England game. Dunnick Ryan's going to be in studio as well, uh, giving Owen some lessons on how to cook chicken. We'll also give away our premium tickets to Ireland against England, with thanks to Glen Isk. All you have to do in the meantime is uh, head over to our Facebook page and uh, like and share the stream, or, of course, you can like and share the stream that you're watching this on now. We're back tomorrow morning from 7.45am. Check out giveblood.ie for more details on the Irish Blood Transfusion uh, Service and uh, see if you could actually help to prevent the stocks reaching those critically low levels. We'll see you tomorrow. Good luck. So, if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45am.